Solar Observing on episode 334 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky. And this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. So Shane, did you get any observing in over the past week? Uh, just some solar observing again. Um, the uh, the night skies haven't been super wonderful here due to some forest fire smoke that has crept in. And really, it's the same message as last week when we recorded. Um, yeah, so nighttime hasn't been great. But yeah, uh, some solar observing. Always lots to see, lots of sunspot activity, um, filaments, prominences, uh, observing in white light and H-alpha. But I don't think I'll talk too much about it because we're going to spend the whole episode talking about that mm. stuff. So, <laughs> Yeah, good how, stuff. How about you? Did you get any observing in? I, I did. I was able to get out last night. I observed all night. The nights here are very short right now. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, did a, did a few things I'd been wanting to do for a while. You know, I have had those constellation view binoculars that we have made up a number of years ago uh, together. They're like, I think like a two magnification with a 40 or 50 millimeter set of those focal reducer lenses from the old Canon Coolpix or Nikon Coolpix cameras. Coolpix 950 from like the late 90s, early 2000. Mm-hmm. So I, I took those out and did a bit of a scan around just to see what the sky was like. And I was like, oh, it's not too bad. Um, I think I was saying to you and Luca just in our off recording comments that it looked like it was going to be clear last night. It was actually looking really good. And then this cloud moved down from the north. There might have been a little bit of smoke with it, but for the most part, it was just cloud and reasonably thick. So you could you could see stars, but there was lots of high cirrus cloud, a little bit of wind kicked up. And so I thought, huh, I wonder what it will be like at midnight. So went to bed for an hour or so. And then I got up at midnight and stepped out and the cloud had mostly broken up. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a little bit, uh, a little bit milky, but I was able to, to get some observing and it wasn't too bad. Did, uh, did really probably end up being like a couple hours once it's all said and done. So just set up the 60 millimeter because of the the wind and sort of middle of the night, it's it's harder to set up a, a big scope uh, in the dark when you're half asleep. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Get out, was able to see the Coma Berenices cluster, that Malat uh, 111, had a nice binocular view of that and took a long look for NGC 6934, which is a globular cluster in Libra. I think it's around seven and a half magnitude. It's a, a fairly bright one, but just with that haze, I, I was in the right field, and I'm sure some of the stars and and such that I saw were part of that globular cluster because it's pretty big, if I recall. I had wanted to see that for a while, but I don't know whether it was it was just a combination of having the smaller scope and the hazy skies or what. But I, I couldn't 100% identify that uh, globular cluster. Did you ever look at that one? It's a nice globular for this time of year. No, I don't think I have. Well worth it. I took a look at M4 and I could just barely see M4. So mm. I knew that uh that things things were probably uh a bit a bit too uh too thick for for seeing all that much. So I went up uh, took a look at the summer beehive. It was okay. was pretty nice there up in Ophiuchus. And uh then I did a sketch of uh Messi 11, the wild duck cluster, and Basil 1, which is in the head of that Gulf Pederasterism in Scutum. So that was pretty cool. Pretty and productive night, it sounds like. 
yeah, did a sketch of the North American and Pelican Nebulas with the, uh, this is kind of fun, put the 17 millimeter Explore Science in my 60 millimeter scope with a Tele-VH beta filter. Oh yeah. <laughs> and how are you liking that eyepiece now that you're getting a little more time with it? I, I really like the eyepiece a lot. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. Um, Roger Dyer, I think it is. Am I saying his name, last name right? D I E R. If people look up Roger, he does a newsletter blog of sorts, and he ended up buying one after hearing me talk about it, and had a similar experience about about how great the eyepiece is, despite the price. and And I was able to get mine at fifty percent off or something like that. But I I was just curious to see how it would perform even in the sixty millimeter. Because that eyepiece, uh, I think it weighs either the same or more than my 60 millimeter Takahashi FS60. <laughs> well, it's an it's an enormous piece of glass, yeah. and uh, I, you know it's certainly one of the heavier eyepieces out there. I think too. Yeah. So yeah, you're probably not too far off there. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's just it, it does oddly work well even in a small scope. I. Okay. I was able to balance it. I was able to uh, do some pretty productive observing. Like, yeah, you, you got to think about your balance and you got to think about making sure the scope is locked down. Like when you're observing with it, like it, it takes a little bit more thought, but the view is, is worth it because I think in, in my 60, I was getting like a four degree field of view or maybe a little bit more and it just a really, really comfortable view super easy to sketch with the eyepiece that's something i have have come to uh come to like the i guess i've done four or five sketches with it now really a lot of fun to observe with just such a huge eyepiece it's so easy to look through i almost want to look through it with both eyes because the lens is so big (laughs) it's quite uh quite ridiculous oh and then after that it took the h beta filter out and uh kept the 17 millimeter in and took a look at the uh, coat hanger with mm-hmm. the 17, which was, which was quite nice, but you could see like any bright stars, like Deneb, um, any, any of the like bright stars, like, uh, and Terra's, they all had like a very like noticeable halo around them from this thin Cirrus that was, uh, that was up there. Did take a look at Venus at dusk and it was sort of, you know, as, as those clouds moved in, there were, they were spaced out a little bit and man, Venus was so bright last night. It was ridiculous. Hmm. I haven't looked much at Venus this year. Um, yeah, I really should make more of an effort for that one. Yeah. But I did wish that, um, I, it was supposed to be pretty clear, but it really wasn't that great. It was still good enough to do some deep sky. I probably would have done another half hour or 40 minutes, which, which would have maxed out the night. Had uh, had the conditions been a little bit better, but like we talked about with Luca, I wish that I had remembered. You know, it's like the middle of the night; it's hard to remember things. Uh, to uh, to grab the carbon star list because I think it would have been a good night for that. I did look at that. I think it's HM Libre, and it was it was quite nice last night, even with a little bit of uh, thin haze that was around. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm keen to to do that list. So yeah. Anyway, we're going to talk solar observing, and uh, we're getting a bit of a flurry of solar observations from people, and uh, made up a bit of a. I guess this might end up being a bit of a shorter show, but we we did receive 
uh, an email here from from Levi Shane. Not sure if uh, you've got the notes there. Uh, if you're ready to read it, or did you want me to read it? Yeah, yeah, I can read it. So yeah. Levi says, "Hello, Chris and Shane. Lately, the nights have been terrible here in Central Alberta, and your talks of solar viewing had me interested as of lately. I've never viewed the sun through any power, but I have always thought of it as an object that would be very interesting. I'm uh, I'm very glad I was. Uh, or sorry, did I read that wrong? Uh, no. wouldn't be very interesting. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then he says, I'm very glad I was wrong. Uh, my smallest decent scope is a six inch daub, uh, but I wasn't ready to fork out the money for a solar filter for that. Luckily I have a Celestron Astromaster 70 sitting in the garage that I haven't used in ages, but thought I'd see how much a filter for that was. To my surprise, the filter was only 25 Canadian dollars. Easy purchase. Uh, I tried it out for the first time on the 8th and I was blown away first by the views uh, from this hobby killer, <laughs> which uh, was in quotes. Uh, and secondly, uh, how much there was to view on the disc. Uh, I'm actually very glad I opted for the smaller scope filter due to be uh, due to being able to view the total disc, uh, which will help with the upcoming eclipses here. Mm -hmm. Attached is an image that I took with my DSLR on the back of my scope, along with the Aurora that had been preventing me from night observing lately. Clear skies, yeah. Levi. Beautiful uh, solar image with those sunspots and then the Aurora Borealis. Yeah, Very nice. yeah, yeah, beautiful photos. And, um, you know, great, great comment on there too, about using, uh, you know, a refractor that maybe isn't viewed as a high end instrument. Um, you really don't need a super large investment to do really good solar observing. Um, a lot of solar telescopes that you buy from, uh, Lunt or, or Coronado are in fact, achromatic refractors, uh, with, you know, hydrogen alpha lenses in the, or filters, um, so yeah, you know, you can get away with a, a small telescope that is fairly inexpensive and, and really get some great views with the right filter. Have you ever done this shame where you observe the sun and the activity on the sun, which ends up causing Aurora here? Do you ever go and observe that activity on the sun and then observe the subsequent Aurora? Um, I've never connected the dots because, um, when there's a, an outburst on the sun that will eventually cause Aurora, um, it's, it's usually, uh, like a couple days apart. So mm -hmm. you'd, you'd have to, you know, you'd really have to log that, I suppose, but, uh, knowingly, I can't say that I've done that. Yeah. Okay. No, I was just curious. Had, uh, and Richard sent me a whole pile of other images. I meant to put them in the notes here, but he did send this, uh, this one that I did put in the notes showing the sun and, and Richard wrote with this image, he took using a Lunt 80 millimeter with a 3X Barlow and an ASI 174 millimeter mono camera uh, on a solar quest mount. And that thing just looks uh, ridiculously amazing. The amount of detail here. Yeah. Yeah. It's an incredible photo with, um, you know, there's some prominences leaping off of the edge. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're seeing a lot of, um, you know, granulation. There's a bunch of filaments there. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's so much to see it. It really is quite incredible. Um, yeah. Great photograph. Yeah. He sent some other, I think in, in some of the other wavelengths of light, which was, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, Michael, uh, wrote us from Kitchener Waterloo Center. Actually, uh, 
had dinner with Michael a couple of weeks back and uh, he was able to borrow one of the scopes. I, I really like this. Uh, I'll, I'll just read a part of his email. It says uh, the Kitchener Waterloo and sorry, I'm kind of abbreviating everybody's emails this morning. I didn't read Richard, all of Richard's because uh, we just want to sort of get on to a little bit about this, but I like what Michael wrote to ease us into the conversation. He wrote the Kitchener Waterloo club recently got our H alpha solar scope back from repairs and after a couple of the guys at the center had a chance to make sure it was working properly, they handed off to me to try to use during some outreach programming. Well, yesterday was my first look through an H-alpha scope, and I was stunned at the level of detail I could see. All the plages, is, are they plages? Am I saying that right, Shane? Yeah, uh, I think so. Plages, plages. plages? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Sunspots, prominences, filaments, and granulation. It was very cool. I left it set up on my south-facing apartment balcony all afternoon and was checking in on the sun every half hour or so during breaks in between uh, marking tests for the college class that he that he teaches, which I think is in thermodynamics, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it definitely made my afternoon a whole lot more fun, especially with all the changes I could see, even on a relative, even in a relatively short time frame, uh, especially the prominences and filaments. I tried making a sketch, but I'm pretty unhappy with it. So I'm not, not including it here. And then I pressed him. I was like, I want to see the sketch. So then he did send it to me. I thought the sketch looked pretty darn good considering, I think this is uh, mm-hmm. his his first solar sketch uh and definitely his first solar sketch through the uh h beta scope i like i like this because this is how i uh ended up with a dedicated h beta solar telescope for a short period of time because i was doing some outreach sessions for our astronomy club and had borrowed that scope for i think uh a summer. I think it was from like April until November or something like that. And I went and did all uh, the solar observing with them and set it up the odd time for myself and was really able to enjoy that uh, that experience. I've also had a chance to view through some of your scope, Shane, but maybe we'll just start with this. I, I've got some basic questions here. I'm not sure what mm-hmm. you've prepared, but I was wondering maybe we can just uh, begin with how somebody can get started in solar observing. Do they need to go out and buy one of these new expensive solar bandwidth uh, H-beta scopes or uh, what, what's the best way for people to get started? Um, yeah, yeah, great, great question. Um, probably probably two things I'll mention and you already touched on one of them. Um, that is if you're associated with an astronomical club, uh, a number of them, not all of them, I guess, but a lot of them will have, uh, you know, either white light filters or H alpha telescopes that you can borrow. Um, so that's, that's a great way to get started. Um, also, if you're a member of a club, chances are somebody in the club has some solar viewing filters. Again, whether it's white light or H alpha, um, you know, if, if you're able to just uh, you know, borrow a telescope or look through somebody else's telescope. That is really a, a great way to get started. Um, the, the two most popular methods for viewing the sun are, are white light. And there's two different types of filters really for that. There's like the solar film that goes on the front of your telescope or where the, the light enters. 
Um, and then if you have a refractor telescope, uh, you can use a, what's called a Herschel wedge, which is just a, a modified diagonal that filters out the majority of the sunlight and absorbs a lot of the sun's energy in, in the form of heat, um, and allows you to safely view the sun. Uh, so for most folks, when you're getting started with solar observing and you want to make a purchase for your, yourself, most people will start with the white light just because it's more affordable. Um, the solar film, as Levi mentioned, depending on the size of your telescope is fairly inexpensive. You know, his was $25. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have a, say an eight inch daub, you know, you're probably in that hundred dollar range. I'm thinking, uh, for a white light filter film, um, and they will work quite well. Um, if you're using the film though, you do have a little bit of a process every single time prior to looking at the sun with that. Um, and that's that you have to inspect the film to make sure that there's no, uh, damage to it. No, no tears, no holes, um, and the film is somewhat fragile, so you, you really do need to do that inspection and the film will deteriorate over time. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the time period is, uh, but it can start to just sort of naturally degrade and form some little pinhole sized holes. And, um, you know, if, if any amount of sunlight is able to, uh, not be filtered and come through and, you know, due to a tear or a hole, you can definitely cause permanent eye damage. So you really need to be careful with these things. So always inspect them first. Mm-hmm. Um, once they look good and, and the way that I inspect them is, um, I just like turn on a bright light in my house, you know, something that's not going to damage my eye and just hold the filter up and see if you can, um, you know, if any light is starting to come through, you know, if, if, if there is any type of a hole, you'll, you'll likely see it that way. Um, so do that and then, uh, you know, you're, you're good to go. Um, there, I guess I should also say there's, um, there's glass white light filters. I I don't know if they're still made or not, but they were for Mm -hmm. a period of time. I think thousand Oaks made them maybe others too. Uh, and you would just buy them for the appropriate size of telescope you had. Uh, and very similar to the film, they go on the front of your telescope or where the light enters mm-hmm. and, uh, away you go. Um, now I've never used one of those glass style filters. The nice thing about them is they are, um, they're more durable. So you don't have to worry about, you know, holes or tears. Um, the knock on them, uh, from what I've read is they just, they don't provide the same level of contrast as the films, uh, do. So okay. a lot of people prefer the film just cause it's a better view. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, is, uh, like if you have a Newtonian or like a Cassegrain or any kind of uh, compound telescope, uh, you, you have to use film, um, mm-hmm. Like the compound telescopes, I don't believe you can use the Herschel wedges with them. The the wedges are only for refractors. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's the film in the glass. Now I'll just touch a little bit on the the Herschel wedge, which is that diagonal that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I wanted to. I really want to ask you about that because I think I've looked through one before, and I think there's there's a a better one, better one, and when when that diagonal it's part of the diagonal isn't it that sits on the tail end of the telescope instead of the regular diagonal is that what it looks like how how does that work because you don't use a filter in front of the telescope for that do you or do you no no you don't um there's no filter in the front of the telescope you just use this herschel wedge it replaces your usual diagonal 
And uh, it filters out something like five nines, like 99.99% of the light. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a heat sink on the back of these things too hmm. that dissipates that that solar energy. Okay. Um, now, you, from what I've read, I don't believe you can use a Herschel wedge if your refractor has oil-spaced elements. Oh. Um, but anything else is fine. Um, okay. Because what happens, I believe, is like if you have... Um, like, like the oil uh, absorbs that sun's energy or has the potential to absorb some of that sun energy uh, in the form of heat and, and cause damage to your optical path there. Hmm. Um, so, you know, if you have cemented optics or airspace optics, uh, you're fine. Okay. Um, and uh, my preferred method, so I've done the film for a number of years. And then a few years ago, I, I bought the Herschel wedge. For me, the Herschel wedge is by far and away uh, superior, um, oh. and primarily for the safety aspect for me. Um, when you put the filter on the front of your telescope, you really need to make sure that it's secured on there. Um, mm-hmm. cause if that thing was to fall off while you have it pointed at the sun, you're, you're, you're going to instant, like if your eye is at the eyepiece, when that happens, you, you would instantly cause permanent damage and potential blindness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the filter never fell off for me, but it's just always in the back of my mind, mm-hmm. you know, if a wind gust came up or something like that. So, yeah. so yeah. with that diagonal in the back, um, you know, it, it's just far safer, uh, because that diagonals, you know, not if going it falls, anywhere. well, if, if it, it falls, falls out, you're not going to see anything anyway. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. So, so there's that, um, uh, the, the Herschel wedge too, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's like that glass, uh, filter that I was talking about. It's, it's very durable. You don't have to worry about tears, holes, that kind of stuff. And, uh, I believe that it does provide a nicer view as well. Like you're just able to see the contrast, uh, in white light a lot better. Um, now the downside is, is they certainly are more expensive. So, you know, you have to balance, uh, that into the equation, but, um, you know, with white light, some people, you know, when you look at white light versus hydrogen alpha, hydrogen alpha is just absolutely incredible. And, and I think that white light sometimes gets ignored unfairly because of the brilliance of H alpha, but there is a lot to see with a white light filter. And in fact, you can spend hours a day, every day, especially right now when we're at a solar maximum. So solar maximum, you know, there's a lot of sunspot activity and it, it really does change on a daily basis and sometimes even an hourly basis. So with, a with, with all of these filters, um, what you're doing is seeing different layers of the sun and with a white light filter, you're seeing the photosphere. And within that realm, you're going to see sunspots. Um, and there's a lot of detail within the sunspots, within the umbra and penumbra, um, and then how they join with other sunspots. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see granulation, um, which is like kind of just little, I don't know, uh, almost looks like little specks uh, all over the sun, but they're not dark. They're sort of uh, a different um uh, sort of a different tone of, of kind of that gray or white that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can sometimes see light bridges, which are a little rare. Um, but that's like a kind of a brighter area joining a, a couple of sunspots. Um, and then you can uh, also see faculae, uh, which are just kind of bright veins or patches of light, 
Uh, you usually see them more towards the limb. So that would be the edge of the sun. Um, and, and they can be huge. And again, they kind of evolve form and dissipate, um, sometimes, uh, over several minutes, but, you know, sometimes longer than that too. And on Richard Covey's photo here, which we touched on earlier, I, I can see a few things on that image, Shane, you can see that there's like the, so first of all, you have this beautiful black background of space next to the bright, bright, very limb of the sun. And then over the surface, it almost looks like fur or carpet or something. And it's got like these lines in it. Are those the faculae? The lines would be the the faculae. I'm not sure. I don't have that image. Is it in the notes? Yeah, I put it in the notes there. Yeah, it's just got, there's like three vertical bright lines. They're kind of look like W's or seagulls or something. And then there's a couple bright spots and then there's, there's sort of a long meandering line down oh, towards the bottom. Yeah. Sorry. in H alpha there. Yeah. 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 So H alpha, you're looking at a different layer. You're looking at the chromosphere. Oh, okay. So those lines will be, um, uh, filaments and typically oh, okay. what that is, is you're, you're seeing a prominence. So now normally you see prominences along the edge and there's a couple in this photo and those are like the kind of the energy or matter jumping off the surface and they're mm -hmm. quite stunning. Now those lines on the surface that you see in H alpha, uh, that is a prominence, but we're seeing it sort of the top of it, you know, it's, okay. it's sort of coming out towards us essentially. All right. Um, and, uh, I guess, I guess though, that's probably the darker one there. Uh, okay. filaments are usually darker. Oh, okay. Uh, those other lines, um, um, just pulling up some reference material here. That's, I don't want to misspeak. Um, it's a very different view than in white light. That's the thing that really mm -hmm. struck me when I first started looking through like your telescope and, and the telescope, uh, that the club had purchased and, and other people had bought is that through those hydrogen, uh, alpha scopes, you really get this, uh, this, uh, you know, very fine detail all over the sun. And like with Michael Wright's uh, sketch, he was only using like 16 magnification and his sketch of the sun in, in some ways almost looks like a lunar sketch, uh, just the way that he's depicted some of the features, because there's like almost that much detail. It's almost uh, as, as feature rich as looking at the moon, except instead of having craters, you have all these different, uh, speculae and prominences and dark spots and, mm -hmm. and uh, flares and other activity uh, that, that is changing moment, moment to moment and really, really need to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think, uh, I think those brighter patches are indeed faculae uh, okay. on there. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, I don't know as much about, I'm really uh, like a member of the public almost when it comes to the solar observing, because I I've only just sort of uh, scratched the surface of uh of using an h beta scope myself and like i said i just had it for a summer and then uh did some outreach with it and then uh basically have just uh slept some views through you guys when you bring your scopes out especially if we're down in the grasslands or something you set one up during the day it's uh, pretty fun to look through yeah you know and, and maybe just one quick caveat to put out there when when we say h alpha please understand that that is a dedicated solar filter and that there are also hydrogen alpha um, 
Oh, uh, like camera nebula. filters. Nebula yeah, for filters. nebula. Oh, yeah, don't use those. Do not yeah. use those on the sun. Yeah. Those will not filter out enough light and will cause permanent eye damage. If you're going to use a hydrogen alpha filter for the sun, make sure it's one intended for solar observing. Um, the key makers of those uh, right now would be Lunt, Coronado, and I think Daystar is still making some as well. And, and there might yeah. be some others. Uh, so apologies if I missed some, but those are the three key ones that I'm aware of. And you really should go with somebody from the club like Shane, if you're through China Center or wherever the solar observers are, um, or even go to us. There's lots of solar outreach activities that uh, that take place. And I think it's best to go out and to take a look at uh, how and what uh, people are using to look at the sun. But I, I still think joining a club and getting access to these scopes, because uh, pretty typically most of the clubs own one of these uh, hydrogen alpha telescopes. And really, for the most part, Shane, you're you're buying a telescope system. It's like a dedicated uh, telescope, although I think you can buy some of these filters to go on. Now, the Herschel wedge can go back on any telescope that, that can take a diagonal. Um but the uh, but these these hydrogen alpha telescopes are are pretty much dedicated units, or am I misspeaking there? For the most part, uh, Lunt is starting to make um, some dual use H alpha scopes that you can take off the H alpha filter, and then you just have a regular telescope. Um, the the way the the telescopes are constructed, you have the hydrogen alpha. Uh, they call it an etalon, but you know, it's basically a big filter that's at the front end of your refractor. And then after that, so behind that will be uh, either an achromatic or an apple uh, lens, just regular telescope lens. And then at the back, you have your diagonal. So that's kind of the rough construction of these things. So if you are able to remove the hydrogen alpha filter uh, off the front of it, you essentially have a regular refractor. Hmm. And, um, uh, you know, so like I say, Lunt is making some dual use ones and, uh, some other folks, what they'll do is just buy a hydrogen alpha etalon and a blocking filter. You have to have both. Um, mm -hmm. and they, uh, will buy adapters that, uh, attach to their telescope, like their regular refractor, but it, it oops, dropped my water bottle. Oh, no worries. Um, uh, and, and this adapter then allows the hydrogen alpha etalons to be attached and you can kind of convert your your regular refractor into an H alpha scope and and have it be a dual use as well. Yeah. So I think if people are going to do that, again, I think you should seek out amateurs, probably like Cloudy Nights as a whole solar observing um, mm -hmm. section or, or forum, um, or like your local visual observers that are doing it, or I suppose uh, even contact the uh, the companies. I'm sure they'd be happy to help you out and sell you all the appropriate uh, accessories and accoutrements for uh, for this type of observing. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, good stuff. Maybe we'll talk just a little bit about H alpha if somebody does go down that yeah. path. Um, there's lots of different apertures. Um, what I'll say is that uh, like. My all of my H alpha observing uh, in my backyard has been either with a 35 millimeter Lunt or uh, what I purchased last year or, or maybe the year before, which was a 40 millimeter Coronado. Um, you don't need a lot of aperture to have very, very good views of the sun. Like Levi uh, pointed it with his 70 millimeter, even at the start. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Um, what, what more aperture will do for you, like it, it's the complete 
like it, it, like what you know about nighttime observing doesn't really apply too much to observing the sun. Nighttime, you want large aperture typically to you know get as much light as you can. Well, with the sun, you're actually trying to filter out almost all of the light because it's too bright. And all aperture really does for you at this point is increase your image scale. So the sun just appears larger. Um, and you know, that does have benefits. It allows you to probably see more detail, um, whether it's, you know, in the prominences or on the surface. Um, however, you don't need a lot of aperture if you're, um, really just doing visual observing. Um, if you do want to get into photography, um, with H alpha, that's, I don't know a lot about it, but I do know it can be challenging and, and certainly ramp up the cost, which mm -hmm. really isn't a big surprise, but uh, if somebody's interested in that, I would suggest, you know, researching probably more on cloudy nights or other sources. Um, but one thing I will say when you're, when you're purchasing a hydrogen alpha scope, you know, there's the aperture of the scope, but there's also the size of the blocking filter. So again, that blocking filter is the diagonal that comes with an H alpha scope. Um, they come in different sizes and basically the sizes represent, uh, the size of the, um, I guess the aperture of the diagonal, uh, how much light it passes through to the eyepiece. And um, you want as large of a blocking filter as your budget allows you. Um, that really has a huge impact on how well some of your eyepieces will work and how bright the image is of the sun. Um, if your blocking filter is too small, say like four millimeters, um, you're, you're probably going to be frustrated. Uh, the sun may not appear very bright. Um, you might even have some blackouts like with your eye placement at the eyepiece. Um, with my Lunt, it, I think it came like kind of stock with a four millimeter filter, but I, I didn't even receive that. I just, when I ordered it, I, I upgraded to a six millimeter blocking filter and it's wonderful. Um, really, really good views. The Coronado now that I have is a 10 millimeter blocking filter and it's outstanding as well. So blocking filters are important. And then the other thing you want to look at is the angstrom rating. And the angstrom rating is what will tell you how much detail that telescope is able to show you on the sun. Um, a typical angstrom rating might be between 0.7 and 1 you want that number to be as low as possible. This is like golfing. Um, you know, <laughs> a, a 0. 0.7 is better than a one. It'll show you more detail. And like a 0. 0.5 is better than the 0. 0.7. And um, one way you can actually kind of increase your angstrom rating is, is stacking Edelon filters. So a common thing you'll hear about in H-alpha circles is a double stacked telescope. Mm -hmm. And basically it's just two Edelons, uh, attached at the front and it allows you to see a lot more detail. Now it also filters out more light. So when you do this, you're also dimming the view, uh, but that's not always a bad thing. And, and, um, the Coronado that I'm using now is actually a double stacked 40 millimeter and it is outstanding. Like the Lunt was incredible but the Coronado with the double stack is almost becoming photographic uh, when I do visual observing through it. It's just wonderful. So um, what, so how does it look? Uh, I've never looked through one of the double stacks. So you originally had this Lund. Mm -hmm. Shane, with that Lund, did it have a different color tone to the sun? For some reason, I feel like I recall that it had a different tone, like with typically the, the original H 
alpha scopes that I looked through, um, the sun had this sort of very orangey red. But did did the lent have a slightly different cast than uh, than the coronado, or am I misremembering that? You know, that's a great question. I, I should do a, a side by side. Um, the coronado is very red, and I think that the lent is maybe a little closer. Like it's certainly red, but more on the oranger side of red. Okay. Um, the the lent that I have is is I think it's kind of a special one. Um, it was one of the first ones produced and it constantly outperforms, uh, some 60 millimeter lunts that I've looked through. Oh, wow. And, um, there's, there's multiple people, uh, at the Regina center that have looked through my little 35 millimeter lunt and they couldn't believe how good the views were. Mm. And, you know, I would take it out when we were doing solar events with the public. So you have multiple H alpha scopes around and most of them were 60 millimeter lunts. Um, and I looked through them all and I always came back to mine for the better view. Um, mm-hmm. so I, there's something special about that one. And, uh, in fact, I even had a 50 millimeter lunt for a little while with the pressure tuned, uh, Edelon on it. And, um, I sold the 50 millimeter. It was nowhere near what my 35, uh, produced for, for a view. Is um, that so? Yeah. Yeah. So, huh. you know, it, the quality of the optics, um, are really, really pronounced with hydrogen alpha observing because there's so much contrast to see far more than anything else you'll look at that if you have any sort of, um, I don't know, poor quality optic in the light path, it's, you're probably going to notice it. And, uh, whether that's the eyepiece or, you know, the objective in the telescope, all of that kind of stuff factors in. So there's something special about that little lunt that it just is all well done, I guess. Shane, before I forget, what would be like a price breakdown um, of, say, just like a regular white light, um, what do you call it? The, just like the tin foil, looks like the tin, what's that called? The oh, film? the film? Yeah. yeah. Well, like, say, like for like a 70 millimeter scope, um, for white light, for a single hydrogen alpha and then for a decent double stack, what, what would you be looking at for each of those? How would how would the price break down on those for people that are sort of listening in? Yeah, so Levi mentioned for his 70 millimeter, the film was like $25, I think. Um, and I'm not sure if that was just the film or if that was also like a mounting ring that allowed it to be attached to the telescope, but probably for 25 to $50, uh, you're likely going to be able to purchase some kind of a, a solar film filter for your telescope. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly that's the most affordable. Uh, if you're getting into hydrogen, well, let's talk about maybe, um, oh, the, the wedge, uh, the, the wedge. Yes. Sorry. I meant to yeah. ask about that as well. So the wedges will come in two sizes, uh, inch and a quarter, um, and then, uh, two inch. Now, Is, oh, wait, hang on. Is there any advantage of going to, I mean, you're just looking at the sun. Is there any advantage of going to a two inch solar wedge or using two inch eyepieces when you're solar observing this hadn't occurred to me before one advantage of the diagonal and it has actually nothing to do with a two inch eyepiece oh the, the two inch diagonal is able to dissipate more heat oh, so okay. if you're using they typically say i think anything over four inches of aperture uh you need you need the two inch wedge uh, or else the inch and a quarter wedge will get too hot and you may damage the the inch and a quarter. Okay. So it's really aperture dependent. Oh, okay. 
Um, so the Lunt wedge, uh, looks like the two inch is about 449 Canadian dollars. Um, the inch and a quarter, I think is around that $300 range. Oh, so there's not like a huge difference even. No, no, not a huge difference. Now, as you mentioned, Bader makes uh, a wedge as well. Yeah. And they have like integrated filters. And I think that there's some other makers of wedges that have some integrated neutral density filters, um, which I didn't mention. And I should have, even with a a wedge, it'll take out a lot of light uh, enough to be safe, but I still use a neutral density. In fact, I use a variable polarizer with my white light just to adjust the light level. So it's more comfortable. Um, and sometimes you want things dimmer. Sometimes you want them a little lighter or brighter, I should say, uh, mm-hmm. depending on what features you're teasing out. Um, so anyway, a few different options out there, but, um, so about 300 to say $500 for wedges. Um, and, and like an associate, like a, like a variable polarizing filter isn't an, an expensive thing. Usually it's, you can get one for, uh, I don't know, maybe like $70. Yeah. Yeah. They're not too bad at all. Mm. Um, so moving on to hydrogen alpha, uh, there's a couple, uh, you know, I'm just going to comment on Lunt cause I, I don't want to, you know, hit every single maker out there. I'm, yeah. <laughs> um, but Lunt has a, a 40 millimeters, um, which I guess would be kind of their entry level. Now it comes with a six millimeter blocking filter, which is great. You know, that'll be a, a real solid instrument. Um, and it's about, uh, oh, 1100 Canadian dollars for that. Um, and it looks like it has everything that you want to get started. Now, the, the downside to that is it's a helical focuser. Um, so not the best type of focuser. If you're, if you're wanting something that's a little more advanced, uh, Lunt has this, uh, 50 millimeter, uh, that comes with, a I think it's a, a normal rack and pinion or, or Crayford focuser. Um, it has a, what's called a pressure tuner on it. And this thing is, uh, about 1400 Canadian dollars. Uh, now the, the pressure tuner, the, the, uh, Adelon that I mentioned, you, you tune it to show some different features, depending how it's tuned, it might show more surface detail versus prominence. And then you tune it the other direction and, and it shows more prominence detail rather than surface. And, um, if there's no pressure tuner, it's just like a little dial on the etalon and you just rotate it and it, it varies the angle of the etalon, uh, to show some different features. Uh, the pressure tuner that Lunt has developed just uses air to move that etalon, uh, to show some different features. So, um, kind of a neat design, but it, it's quite a heavy telescope actually. Um, but anyway, you can get into hydrogen alpha for, you know, about $1,100 Canadian plus, you know, taxes or whatever. Oh, okay. And, uh, where you go. Hmm. And how much for, uh, entry level into the double stacking realm? Um, that's a good question as well. Let's just have a quick look. Here. Sorry. I don't mean to be putting you too much on the spot. I, I really don't know much about this myself. Listeners should know. And since uh, we were getting a lot of these questions, uh, ask Shane, if you wouldn't mind kind of just sort of helping organize the, uh, the thoughts this little bit, I'm just kind of tossing questions to him today. So he's just, uh, just rolling with, uh, what we're coming up with, but I, I think it's kind of neat. And I, I guess part of the reason why I'm asking Shane is when Michael wrote and he sent that image, he talked about 
that telescope that uh, they have at the KW Center uh, running into the uh, high single digit thousands of dollars. So mm-hmm. uh, th- that that's a lot of money. And uh, I always do get concerned when we're recommending things that uh, that people are going to go and, and, and spend too much money or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So I referenced the Lunt uh, 40 millimeter. It's 1100 and $50 or whatever Canadian. Okay. Um, if you want to add another Edelon to do double stacking, uh, let's just do a quick conversion from US dollars. So it's 649 US dollars to Canadian. So 870 Canadian dollars for a second Edelon. So, okay. so about $2,000 to get into that. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. T- yeah. Typically the second Edelon is starting to approach the cost of the whole telescope. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. not, yeah. it's not inexpensive. D- to do. Double stack, double the, you know, double the cost, basically. Double your fun, double your cost. Yeah. yeah. Hey, there. I got a question and sorry, I, I don't mean to take any of these like sort of random directions. No, this it's is just, good. Yeah. But one of the things I noticed like with Michael's sketch and his observation there, he was only using like 16 magnification. Mm-hmm. That kind of surprised me. And can you just talk about, like the, the magnifications that uh, that are typically used, like that you're using when you're doing solar observing, why do you guys use lower power? And something about like different eyepieces as well. I, I think some eyepieces uh, typically work better than, than other eyepieces, which uh, seems to be a little bit of a strange result. Yeah, I've, I've found a lot as well that um, lower magnification is better with hydrogen alpha. Uh, I really prefer lower power views. Um, I, you know, some of it is just seeing the, the whole disc of the sun is, is phenomenal with H alpha. Just, it's a, it's a very different experience to see all of that all in one view, but it just seems like I, I am able to get crisper views with lower power. And I think some of that is just the seeing during the daytime usually isn't as good. So, you know, more magnification also magnifies the negative impacts of seeing, um, so yeah, I usually use probably around 20, 15 to 20 times is probably where I'm at most days when I'm doing huh. hydrogen alpha. Occasionally, if the seeing is good and there's an interesting prominence, I will increase the magnification to just try to, uh, view that prominence, uh, you know, on a larger scale. Um, the other thing, uh, so the other question you had too, is about eyepieces and, yeah. um, yeah, I, I do find that the simpler eyepieces really are noticeably better in terms of cro- like sharpness and contrast. Um, the, uh, so when I say simpler eyepieces, like orthoscopics, plossils, uh, typically for me, uh, perform better mm-hmm. when I use like a, a wider field, multi-element eyepiece, it just, it seems like you're just uh, like, you're losing some of that contrast and sharpness. It's not quite the same. Um, now, you know, I, it goes back to a comment I made earlier about the sun being probably the most contrasty thing you can look at. So if there are any sort of weaknesses within that optical path, it's probably going to show, you know, at the eyepiece mm-hmm. um, and not that wide field multi-element eyepieces are are weaknesses. They just don't excel necessarily for solar. And, and the other thing, like with solar, you just don't need the wide field view. You know, really all you're trying to do is encapsulate the sun and um, <laughs> it, it doesn't require, you know, uh, an ethos or anything like that. Um, perhaps I suppose if you're doing high power, maybe, but uh, for me, I, I stick with my orthos and, and simpler eyepieces. 
I got, I got another story. I don't mean you just like peppering you with all these random questions, but you seem to know uh, quite a bit about this. Uh, so it's my opportunity. Yeah. All when, good. when, when you're observing uh, what mount are you using, are you just using your alt as mount or are you using a, like a uh, tracking mount of any sort? And if people are getting tracking, because I think the sun cuts differently across the sky a little bit. Like, do you have to use like a different, like solar sidereal rate or anything like that? Um, so typically almost like 99% of the time I'm using just a manual alt as mount, mm -hmm. um, finding the sun is actually difficult. I really do recommend something like the Teleview soul searcher, which is a very simple finder for the sun. Um, if you don't have something like that, it actually takes quite a while, at least for me to get the sun in, in the field of view. Oh, um, but anyway, uh, alt as mount manually tracked. Uh, I do have a couple of mounts that I've used before to track the sun. Um, and it, it, you're right. There is a different side reel for that. And most tracking mounts will have a solar option, uh, which accounts for that. Okay. Huh. Very cool. And what about, you know, for, we have, uh, some upcoming solar eclipses. There's an annular solar eclipse in October. The, the date, uh, exact date escapes me for some reason. I feel like it's the 23rd, but I could be wrong. And then we have the April 8th total solar eclipse, which is going to cut across uh, sort of from eastern Canada down into the uh, uh, southern U.S. Uh, in through Texas. And so for for partial or an annular solar eclipse is one type of telescope like white light or hydrogen alpha better or or, you know, does it does it matter for the total solar eclipse? Uh, does it matter? Like, like what would be sort of the recommendations based on the, uh, solar events we kind of have coming up over the next year? Yeah. Um, both, if you can afford it, <laughs> <laughs> of uh, course, there's yeah, your answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the easy answer. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, you know, like either, either are, are great for an eclipse. Certainly the, the white light solar film is the most accessible and, you know, easy, easy, uh, purchased in terms of impact on your bank account. Um, but what's neat about an eclipse, you know, it's a, it's a long-term event, whether it's annular or a total eclipse, you're going to be, you know, out there for hours, likely, uh, experiencing this. And if you have a white light and, or an H alpha scope to, to watch the slow progression of the moon, um, you're able to observe all of this other interesting stuff on the sun. So it just makes the whole event more enjoyable because now you have, uh, you know, the ability to observe sunspots or the ability to observe prominences and other detail. And, uh, you know, it just, it makes the day more interesting. I think if you can observe, you know, features, uh, on the sun, certainly just having like the, the solar film glasses are great for those events, but having a telescope where you can start to see some of those other details, um, you know, really just make the whole thing more enjoyable. What about the solar binoculars? Did, did they still, I remember seeing like these little Coronados back oh, a long time ago. They were like 20 millimeter, or 25 millimeter binoculars, eight magnification or something. Did you, did you ever try those or use those? I'm curious. Yeah, well, I, I've never owned them, uh, but a, a local member of the Regina Club had bought a pair of, I don't know, I think they were made by Lunt, but I'm not sure. 
they were white light binoculars dedicated for solar observing. Oh. And um, I did use them briefly and yeah, they work, they work pretty good. My only issue, like, I think they were like eight by 42s or something okay. like that. Kind of your standard binocular size. Um, it just, I'm, I'm not good at holding a binocular steady. Um, and it was just a little too shaky for me. So I, I think you'd still want a tripod with those, but uh, certainly that's a, a good option too. Hmm. Okay. All right. Sorry. Just didn't, uh, didn't know which, which would be the preference for any of those. I remember watching the transit of Venus and we had both types of telescopes and they each prevent, uh, presented a slightly different, uh, uh, different view. Um, maybe yeah. just one comment, Chris, about yeah. binoculars is, is you can buy white light filters for binoculars, which, yeah. you know, if you've already got binos, this is probably, you know, another, rather than going to buy dedicated solar binoculars, just go buy the, the filters and, you know, convert your existing binoculars. Yeah. Just be careful looking at the sun because you may want to build like a little, a cardboard thing to block out the sun. Cause it would be sort of easy to mm. accidentally move your, your eyes off. Mm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, good point. Yeah, always, always practice uh, solar safety. Okay, Th those are kind of my my questions, Shane. Uh, I, I haven't been watching the time or anything, and and didn't know if you had any other uh, areas of of solar observing that uh, that you wanted to cover. One one last comment for me is if you are browsing, say, Lunt's website, you may notice uh, what's called a calcium filter or calcium K. That's right. Yeah, I want to. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. What about that? Yeah. So you'll see that the images are like a bluish or purplish mm. tone. Uh, mm -hmm. They do, they do uh, reveal some different features of the sun, but it's only photographic. I don't believe you can use those visually. Oh. So if you are, you know, kind of interested in that, um, I, I think you're really just signing up for views with a camera. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense then. Anything else to uh, add before we conclude? Um, uh, just you, people have heard me say it before, I'm sure, but I just, I really can't, uh, state enough how fun solar observing is. If you're not doing it, you should start. This is a great time. Uh, there's so much action on the sun right now to observe. You can do it during the day, you know, fit it in, you know, kind of in between your weekend chores or day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you can really get a lot of solar observing in without a, a real big impact, uh, to your day. And, uh, it's very rewarding. So I, I really encourage people to give it a try. Fun on the sun, wear a hat and wear your sunscreen. There you go. Good stuff. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks to our Patreon supporters and the many other listeners who write in. You can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.